This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. What goes on in our courts and our entire system of justice is getting greater scrutiny these days, thanks in no small part to the publicly funded Open Justice Project, which is dedicated to that purpose. So this week we look at that and we ask, what happens when the money for that runs out? Also, serious spikes in the price of fresh fruit and veggies is a real problem for many, and the cost of one favourite right now is shocking some big-name broadcasters. Seven fifty for three tomatoes. Wow. I mean, that's ridiculous. What could possibly explain that? The reason tomatoes are so expensive at the moment is because it's winter. More on that later. But first, how the media handled what's been called the most watched multimedia event in history so far, this week's funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. It is a 24-hour flight followed by an eight-hour wait. Why was this so important to you? Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, Cobra, but it turns out (laughs) the queue is actually quite long. Of course, the question most often asked is, how long have we got uh, before we get there? That was Tova O'Brien of Today FM last Monday morning talking to her own boss at the network, Dallas Gurney, who flew to London at almost the last minute to line up with thousands of others queuing up to see QE2 lying in state after a hell of a wait. I have it on good authority. We've got seven bridges to go. But I think, you know, <laughs> for me, it, people have laughed and said kind of people at work, you know, my boss Cam, he's kind of gone, oh, you're a moniker. And I guess I am, I guess I am, but it's also just, you know, about being part of history and I'm, I've been lucky enough to be at, um, you know, events, you know, global events that you'll never forget. And I think this is one of them and it was too good an opportunity to miss. And the next time anyone else at the network wants time off for a funeral, it'll be pretty hard for the news boss to say no. But while Dallas Gurney and fellow queuers were waiting, plenty of people back home were also asking, are we there yet? With the mourning period already into its second week and the funeral still more than 24 hours away at that point. And the media, television especially, were not exactly taking the less is more approach in filling the gap. All this royal breeding single-handedly created a mass market for the cute corgi, which ebbed and flowed through the decades. Plus, this is no ordinary blanket. How keeping the Queen's knees warm was just the beginning of its adventures. The details in just a moment. It was TVNZ's Seven Sharp show last Monday, while News Hub Nation last weekend offered this. One person who has many royal opinions is British author Lord Geoffrey Archer. Patrick Gower spoke to Lord Archer in London and asked him how well he knew the Queen. Well, not that well, according to an interview that Geoffrey Archer gave London's Evening Standard last weekend, in which he said that he only met her three times over several decades in politics, making his views not all that relevant, as Geoffrey Archer himself acknowledged. Any New Zealander watching this has the right to say, Geoffrey, it's nothing to do with you, mind your own business, we'll decide. Geoffrey Archer sits in the House of Lords and he writes novels that sell, but he hasn't been taken seriously in the UK since he was jailed for perjury 20 years ago for lying in a libel case against a newspaper. Now, by the time that aired, Today FM's Tova O'Brien had already been in the UK for more than a week and, unlike her queuing boss, she'd already seen the Queen lying in state. When you first step into Westminster Hall, the silence crashes into you like a kind of sonic boom. It's incredible. I don't even want to breathe. 
let alone allow my black high-heeled foot fall too heavily. The media comes through in shifts every hour, another delegation welcome to observe, to be a witness, take notes, no recordings, but to know and understand what's happening here to be able to accurately report and document it. Not breathing would be a bit above and beyond the call of duty, though Tova O'Brien was conscious that for her there was no queuing up necessary to witness all that. The media delegation I was with was led up into a tiered holding pen at the exit of the hall, at the opposite end from where people who have been queuing, some for 25 hours, are filing into the space. I am very, very aware of the privilege of my role and the job that I am here to do. Now, the media, of course, need such access to do their jobs properly, and they're not usually so grateful for it. Now, that same day, Tova O'Brien also asked Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who also got VIP access, would she have lined up for more than half a day otherwise? I think I would, you know, uh, and I think I, I would in part as a way of acknowledging the moment in time as well as the person. And you get the sense that for, for many it's a, as much about, you know, when they bring their children for them to acknowledge and uh, have an understanding of what a truly remarkable person she was, but to also be a part of that history. There's been some backlash against the media and MPs for giving the access that they do to the lying-in state, not having to, to wait. Do you think that, that that criticism is valid? Oh, I was uh, very aware, I think, of the privileged position we had. I believe that most will be very aware uh, of how lucky they are. Now, the Prime Minister's claim that she'd have queued up like Beckham led the Today FM news in the following hour, even though, as we've heard, media and VIPs alike who didn't have to queue were at pains to tell people we do know how lucky we are, mate. Now, on Thursday last week, when the queues and the crowds were still forming, RNZ's Kim Hill asked Corin Dan in London this question. It's all quite mad, isn't it, Corin? You know, the whole, the busbies and the ceremony and the marching and the... It's all, when you step back, quite bonkers, but engrossing. It is. I have to agree. In the sense, it's just such an, an extraordinary amount of energy and effort and organisation. And for all the attention given to that, it wasn't exactly unprecedented. People have gathered in big numbers before for royal funerals, royal weddings and jubilees in the UK. And they also made the point on Morning Report that all this was happening against a backdrop of serious problems in the UK, for example, energy shortages and revolving door leadership of the government. Though for the time being, everything else had been squeezed out of the news there. And here in New Zealand, although in the hours before the funeral, the most viewed story on TBNZ's One News Now website was about Ed Sheeran's cancelled gig in the capital, while Stuff's most viewed story was one about Sam Uffendale. Now, indeed, the National Party was accused of trying to bury awkward news by releasing the results of its investigation into the Tauranga MP on that day. And in faraway London, Tova O'Brien didn't approve. I thought that the National Party's release of the findings on the day of the Queen's funeral absolutely reeked. Media Watch's Hayden Donnell took a look at that and other things that didn't make much news while the focus was on the Queen's funeral in this week's Midweek Media Watch. That's on our page of the RNZ website or our section of the RNZ app if you missed it, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. The Queen's state funeral this week was estimated to be the most watched TV and multimedia event the world's ever seen. And it would have been a once-in-a-lifetime spectacle for many, as the host broadcaster reminded viewers frequently. The arrangements of the state funeral on a scale not seen in Britain for 70 years since the funeral procession for King George VI in 1952. More than 
3,000 military personnel taking part. But around the world, some media were asking the question, just why were so many people so engaged and so emotional, including journalists, about what was in the end a lengthy Anglican church service bookended by slow-moving and mostly military parades. Well, media coverage, of course, was part of the answer, and when Tova O'Brien asked US-based Gail Stever how come an essentially aloof elite figure came across as so relatable to so many people, the author of The Psychology of Celebrity said simply, it's because she was so famous. I don't know what it's like there in New Zealand, but here in, in the United States, I don't know the people in my neighborhood all that well. I probably know more about Queen Elizabeth than I know about the people who <laughs> live next door here. And to work out whether New Zealanders who never met the Queen were really grieving, TBNZ turned to a human behaviour specialist, Hayden Brown, who said some people here would respond to the Queen's death intensely because, unlike, say, a familiar family member, they've only seen the positive aspects of the Queen via the media. Many obviously have followed her life for a long time, um, be it through hearing stories. Um, so grief, first of all, is based um, on our perceptions. And again, they don't um, require us to, you know, be best friends with her, um, although that would be great. Um, you know, it, it requires um, a positive perception. On the live stream of the Washington Post, the paper's London correspondent Carla Adams said that not everyone in the UK was wrapped up in a union jack. I think it's probably fair to say that people who are even ambivalent about the Queen in this moment are, you know, are still probably saying that I think that she's done a good job and 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 marking this this moment. Um, but you know, there is you know there is a there is a chunk of people who are Republicans who um, you know who wish that the UK didn't have a monarchy. You, those voices are, are definitely there. And in the US, Daily Show host Trevor Noah, who grew up in a South Africa dealing with its own complex colonial history, warned against those insisting upon one note of respectful reverence. You can feel that people, they still understand that it's a momentous occasion, you know, but you can't expect them to mourn it in the same way. Our relationship with somebody may not be the relationship that other people had with that person, and that's fine. You can say, hey, uh, this is my queen, I still love what she represents. It's still, yeah, that's your queen. But don't expect everybody else to now adopt, because basically what you're doing is now recolonizing the people <laughs> and being like, this is who you support, this is who you cheer for, this is... No. You do your mourning, and they'll live their lives. But that wasn't the way Tova O'Brien saw it back in London last Tuesday when she was wrapping up the funeral that she said was unifying and what the Queen would have wanted. To be watching the state funeral with all these families, rollerbladers, roller skaters, punk rockers, submariners, retired military police, pure cockney greats. People from all over the world, all walks of life, the puffer jackets and activewear totally at home alongside the black suits and feathered hats, the Union Jacks draped over shoulders. These were my people. These are all of our people because they are us. However, shortly after that, she was challenged by former Prime Minister Jim Bolger, who told Tova O'Brien that the spectacle he saw out of London wasn't us at all. The extraordinary pomp and ceremony that the British can put on after centuries and centuries of practice, with total irrelevance of much of it, and uh, really that it wasn't New Zealand. Uh, it was the pomp and ceremony of a different country, community and society, that's why I, uh, of course, believe that New Zealand will move on from a monarchy to uh, have a full democracy and we'll have our own head of state.
When the Washington Post posed the question, why is the world so fascinated, it described the Queen herself as a TV show that the whole family could agree to watch. And on the BBC television coverage of the funeral, the star of a TV show of which the Queen was apparently a fan back in the day, said this. That in this world where selfies and I am here and yes, I put my mark on this and it's all about me being involved, there is this pilgrimage that has been going through, paying respects, and there is not a mobile in sight. It is absolutely in the moment. That was Felicity Kendall, the star of the sitcom The Good Life, back in the 1970s. And while it isn't quite true that the people in the crowds in London were keeping their mobiles in their pockets at all times, it did seem as though most people there did want to be in that moment, rather than constantly creating content out of it. And possibly that's out of a heightened sense of respect, as Felicity Kendall seemed to think, or possibly because they knew the mainstream media had it covered wall-to-wall. With the royal funeral done and dusted, News Hub at 6 returned to news as usual, leading with this on Wednesday. Children as young as eight were reportedly involved in a smash and grab at St Luke's Mall in Tāmaki Makaurau. Well, there have been plenty of reports lately about raids on retail stores, but breaking into a big brand jewellery store in broad daylight in one of Auckland's main malls was pretty shocking. And reporter Adam Hollingworth went on to say this. The police say they're following positive leads of inquiry and there'll be increased police presence around the area alongside regular foot patrols inside. Well, if the offenders are caught and the ones old enough go to court, you'll hear all about it at that time in the media. But other crimes around the country day to day don't lead the 6pm news. Indeed, some don't get reported even if they go to court because in recent years, once routine reporting from local courts has been beyond the shrinking newsrooms of local media. But recently there's been more of it in our media and more of a focus on wider issues of justice too, as Hayden Donnell now reports. The treatment of the Stevens Farno at the hands of the justice system can be revealed today after a year-long gagging order imposed by a coroner was lifted yesterday by a High Court judge following legal action by RNZ. That's RNZ Morning Report host Corin Dan introducing a story by Guyan Espiner. He went on to reveal that a coroner had, without evidence, blamed the family of Shagan Stevens for leaking court documents to the media. Stevens was shot by police and Espiner had been following his family's efforts to uncover the events leading up to his death, which included him being subjected to, quote, ninja-style late-night bail checks by police officers who described themselves in emails as, quote, night stalker bros. That reporting was put on hold when the coroner who accused Stevens' family of leaking, J.P. Ryan, also banned the media from covering the case in a decision that was in place for a year before it was overturned by the High Court. Espiner is one of a growing number of reporters putting the spotlight on our legal system and he's not the only one running into obstacles inside the courts. Stuff's Kirsty Johnston recently won a Voyager Award for Best Reporter in part for a story she wrote on a woman referred to as Mrs P., who'd been falsely accused by a judge of lying about being a victim of domestic abuse. In what's become a common problem for her, Johnston struggled to source court transcripts to cover the case. She told Media Watch it's difficult to properly scrutinise district courts in particular, given they hear thousands of cases a year and their judgments aren't routinely made publicly available. Here's what she had to say. 
The lack of access to court information, what actually happens in hearing and what is on the court file, makes it a near impossible task to scrutinise the court system. Johnston is motivated to negotiate these pitfalls because of what she sees as significant and often overlooked inequities inside the legal system for women and minority groups in particular. This is how she puts it in the introduction to the podcast Tell Me About It, which she co-hosts with her colleague Michelle Duff and producer Noelle McCarthy. I'm Kirsty Johnston. I'm a reporter at Stuff specialising in the justice system. I'm Michelle Duff. I'm a national correspondent at Stuff, and I write about issues affecting women and children. We're both obsessed with the way the system is rigged against women and minorities, and that's what we come up against and what we're trying to highlight in all of our work. Stuff's rival NZME, owner of The Herald and News Talk ZB, is also devoting extra resources and attention to the courts. It recently received nearly $3 million from the Public Interest Journalism Fund for its project Open Justice to Partiti, which is funded to employ 15 specialist journalists to cover everything from the Supreme Court to the Tenancy Tribunal. The project has increased coverage of our courts across the country, including several in smaller towns and regions that haven't seen regular scrutiny in some time. People involved in Open Justice told MediaWatch that reporters have been asked to leave courts by staff that were unfamiliar with the fact that they're permitted to be there by law. Stories generated by the project receive a million or more clicks per week, according to a source at NZME, and some have a real impact. Earlier this month, Open Justice to Partiti reporter Jeremy Wilkinson reported on an opportunist rental scammer who had preyed upon immigrants and young tenants for years. Judith Webby had been posing as a landlord using a variety of fake names, and even though her scams had been exposed on fair go in the past, she was still doing it, because those who reported her to police were told it was merely a tenancy matter and she never turned up to the hearings. Tonight... Why have you still got their money? Because I want to. When flatmates fall out, where do you turn? We just felt bullied. It wasn't until Wilkinson reported a relatively obscure Human Rights Review Tribunal decision against Webby recently that the full range of her repeated offences and bullying was exposed by the New Zealand Herald and several other outlets around the country. Despite these sorts of successes, Open Justice's future is far from guaranteed. Its funding runs out in September next year, though NZME can apply for further funds in either of the two final PIJF rounds. We asked NZME to put someone forward for an interview about the impact Open Justice has had so far and what the future may hold. It is, after all, a publicly funded project devoted to openness and accountability. The company declined to be interviewed. So, we looked a little bit closer to home for an interview. RNZ has also scrutinised the justice system with a recent project from its investigative team in depth titled, Is This Justice? It revealed, among other things, that Pākehā are discharged without conviction and granted name suppression at higher rates than Māori, that 90% of High Court and Court of Appeal judges are Pākehā, and that judges could be presiding over cases of people they know. In-depth's editor Veronica Schmidt says the series was motivated in part by personal experience. She recently went through a multi-year court ordeal after being filmed without her permission in a Kmart changing room cubicle. 
At the end of a piece she wrote for RNZ describing that experience, she pointed to some of those inequities in the system, questioning whether she would have been able to go through the legal process if she'd been traumatised by a more serious crime, or whether she could have even pursued a case in the first place if she didn't have access to stuff like childcare or paid leave. I'm a privileged person and was the victim of a relatively minor crime and it took a lot out of me to get justice. So, how much does the system cost the less privileged? How much does it cost the victims of serious crimes? She told Media Watch the increased media spotlight on the justice system is welcome, but more still needs to be done and projects like Open Justice are just the start. Guy and Espinner and I, he's an investigative reporter here at RNZ, we'd both been working on stories that involved um, drawn-out legal processes, and neither of us had been court reporters before. So uh, we came. some would say we came to it with naive eyes, but I think we came to it with fresh eyes, actually. So we, had our, we were in courtrooms a lot, and we had our heads in legal papers, and we were watching sort of judges at work and lawyers at work and witnesses and all of that stuff. And we kept coming back to the office and saying do you know how they do this? You know, like, is this right? What do you think of this? And um, it went on and on and on. We were having these conversations and we ended up roping the team in and decided to do a deep dive on it. Guy and Espiner ran into some uh, measures to impede his reporting when it came to the case of Shagan Stevens. Could you just explain what those were? Yeah, that's right. So in June 2021, Guyon revealed some previously untold details about a fatal police shooting of a man um, called Shagan Stevens, a Rotorua man. So we published that and broadcast it, and two days later we were, in effect, gagged um, from reporting most of the details of the case. The coroner in the case, Coroner J.P. Ryan, issued what was called an interim non-publication order, which was basically a media ban, um, and it covered all evidence given and submissions that were part of the coronial inquiry. So, in effect, we could report very little on the case. And so we were concerned, particularly because his reporting um, sparked um, the IPCA to reopen their investigation into the shooting. Um, And as this was going on, we were kind of banned from reporting most details. So we took legal action. We asked the High Court to review the non-publication order, but it took us almost a year to get a court date. And during that time, what we could report was very much diminished. Was this one of those eye-opening moments where you thought, hey, this system is not open and it's not being scrutinised to the degree it should be? Look, if we could have got a court uh, a court hearing within a week or two and had it out and, and seen what the arguments were and then gone about our business, that's one thing. But we waited for a year um, and then a couple of days before the hearing, the police who had opposed our action um, to have that gagging order um, dropped, they dropped their opposition. But it took a year. Yes, there are processes you need to go through, um, and we were willing to go through it, but it's the time lag, especially when you're reporting on a live case. Have the courts been open to having that kind of scrutiny applied to them? We were pleased that the Chief Justice, Helen Winkelman, spoke with us for the series. But then shortly after you know, the series finished, Stuff ran an article in which... Um, the reporter Eddie Gay quoted a leaked email from the Chief Justice, which we figure was about our series, and Stuff figured it was about our series too, um, because one of our stories there was about the ethnicity and gender of judges. And so, yeah, there's this leaked email that Stuff saw, and it said that recent media coverage had created inaccurate narratives 
about the makeup of the judiciary, which surprised us because our figures were obtained from Crown Law and the Ministry of Justice. So our reporter, Anusha Bradley, went to the Chief Justice and said, what were the inaccurate narratives that you believe that were in our series? And we didn't get a response to that. And the reporting as well. Some of the some of the stories are about stuff like journalists waiting a year or more for court documents and families of you know victims having the same problem. What changes do you think need to be made to make the courts more open to provide us with you know as they say open justice? There's an argument that the courts are open because the actual courtrooms are open. You can walk into them and watch pretty much any case unfold. So they're open in that way. The issue is that most people cannot go and sit in courtrooms every day or be in courtrooms across the country to see if a guy they've invested money with is in the dock for fraud or if a guy they've kind of trusted their kids with is on abuse charges. So they don't rely on the media for that to report what's going on because of financial constraints and actually because of a growing population. You can't have a reporter in every newsroom in the country anymore and that means that you kind of, as much as people would like to, I should say, um, you come back to trying to get information after the fact. And, you know, there's delays there. Um, and some judges are really open and quick and will give you documents that um, tell you what's happened in court and then what's happening in cases, and others are not. Um, and so, yeah, I think journalists feel frustrated because they want to tell the public what's going on and sometimes they can't. And, you know, these aren't short delays. I personally put in our request for a court file to the North Shore District Court in September 2020, and I've yet to get a response. And that, that case is, um, so I wanted to know what had happened in the District Court. That case has since been to the High Court, the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court, and it's over, and I haven't got the District Court file yet. Do you think that it's because some of these judges and court staff in particular haven't had to deal with media scrutiny just because of our financial constraints? Maybe they don't even meet come across a journalist all that often anymore. Yeah, that's possible. And and certainly I know, you know, media organisations are under massive financial pressure and the whole business model of how um, um, commercial media operates is, is going through quite the time. And so it is difficult to get reporters into courtrooms. And I suppose, you know, if you're on the judiciary, maybe you think if you want to cover it, you're in the courtroom and, and that's not always possible. With Is This Justice... There's not a lot of reporting into more of these systemic, these underlying issues. There is court reporting about cases that are ongoing, but there wasn't a lot of that sort of reporting. Had I just missed us talking about these systemic issues, or have we kind of dropped the ball on really analysing the justice system as a whole and the systemic issues with it. Guyon and I were both surprised by some of the things we had seen in the system and also as as our team uncovered things, we were sort of shocked about certain things and, and if we didn't know about them, we figured other people didn't either. So probably there hadn't been enough of a spotlight on the system. Do you think that media spotlight is now starting to be turned upon the justice system. I think of Kirsty Johnston's reporting in particular about the family court and some of the stuff and the abuses that can happen through that. Uh, are, are we getting better in that area? Yeah, like, there, there's, as, there's certainly reporters doing some incredible work um, in that space, and Kirsty is one of them. And as you say, her family court work has been really interesting. There's been debate going on, to be fair, about the family court for a really long time and the secrecy, and there's arguments on both sides, mostly about protecting the privacy of children, and on the other side about the fact that, A, the system should be under scrutiny, and B, people should know what's going on in their courts. Um, are we doing better? Look, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I think there's 
the justice system, it's such a, you know, it's a pillar of d- d- democracy, and I think um, you have to keep that scrutiny up always. Now, I think maybe stuff like the fact that they're not subject to the OIA, they don't have to respond to your requests in a particular time frame, is that stuff that impeding journalists? Mm, yeah, well, yes, exactly. Um, the Official Information Act is such a, a tool um, for journalists and the courts aren't subject to it. So Geoffrey Palmer, um, he was pre- previously the President of the Law Commission as well as obviously um, the Prime Minister once upon a time, um, he reckons there needs to be a court equivalent of the Official Information Act. He says something like a Court Information Act. He says you need legislation to deal with access to court documents because right now it's done by rules decided by the judiciary. So the judiciary decides the rules by which they then decide whether to release things. Um, But is there a political appetite to to get that legislation in place? I haven't seen it. Do you worry about the future of our court reporting? It's been really cool to see um, Open Justice running and seeing more court reporting out there. And, and as a reader, I've as enjoyed the right word when you're, sometimes, when you're sometimes reading about awful things. I've enjoyed seeing more from the courts. That was Veronica Schmidt, editor of RNZ's investigative unit In Depth, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. While it was that startling raid on Stuart Dawson's in the St Luke's Mall in Auckland leading News Hub at 6 on Wednesday, the next story in its bulletin was this. Jacinda Ardern touches down at the United Nations and is taking on the big tech companies again. And that was a reference to the meetings in New York on the Christchurch Call, the international initiative backed by Jacinda Ardern to push back against online extremism. After a summit with French President Emmanuel Macron, the pair launched an initiative with Microsoft and Twitter to research social media's secret algorithms. I think it's very hard to, for governments to say that they're going to step in and regulate something that is so poorly understood. However, as News Hub's Amelia Wade went on to report, Meta, the owner of Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp, Google, which owns YouTube, and TikTok's Chinese parent company ByteDance are all not taking part in this research. Now, one company that is is Twitter, whose boss Jack Dorsey has personally played a part in the Christchurch call, whilst also facing criticism that his platform hasn't done a lot to live up to the call's commitments yet. One former colleague of Dorsey's who worked with him on the social platform which later morphed into Twitter warned us five years ago what the future might hold. Twitter had a model of being very open and collaborative. In that growth, uh, there was a time in which the company chose to be less open and really cut back on the third-party developers and the open ecosystem. And that was a point at which Twitter stopped being a, a tool that you could build neat things on and became more like Facebook, a single website that was destination. And so it's, it's fine and viable, but it's sad because it could have been so much more. That's Evan Henshaw-Plath, who's now working here in New Zealand on social platforms that can't do the kind of harm that the huge global ones are now in the gun for. And we'll hear all about that with him next week here on Media Watch. Recently here on Media Watch, we've heard a lot about the creation of a new public media entity to replace RNZ and TVNZ, 
next year. And at the moment, it's called Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media. Earlier this month, we heard concerns about the editorial independence of it not being sufficiently protected by the legislation to bring it into being, and also how major commercial media companies here feared that the new beast would be a behemoth with beefed-up backing from the public purse that would be bad news for their bottom lines and might also monopolise the best talent as well as bigger audiences. Well, this week, Parliament published the public submissions received, almost 1,000 in total, and many of those put those concerns in writing, along with others. NZME, the owner of the Herald and News Talk ZB, said it wants a cap on the amount of advertising revenue that the new entity could pull in, while the Association of New Zealand Advertisers said that advertisers' needs and input had been overlooked. Alan Martin, a former TV boss here in the 1970s and 80s, who went on to lead Australia's ABC, said the bill, as is, could create confusion and public discontent and actually delay the introduction of meaningful free-to-air public service broadcasting. While Warner Brothers' local branch said that its crowd-pleasing TV shows, including Celebrity Treasure Island, actually reflect and represent New Zealand identity and culture whilst engaging with the widest of audiences. Well, RNZ and TVNZ submissions unsurprisingly backed the bill with some tweaks, and other submitters said they hoped for something similar to the services people get in Ireland, in Australia, and even from the BBC in the UK, though that, of course, is entirely commercial-free, whereas Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media has ad revenue at its heart. Now, all of these submissions will now be considered by the Economic Development, Science and Innovation Select Committee, which held the first of its hearings this week with the Minister in Charge, Willie Jackson, who told the committee this last Thursday. This is going to require a change of culture and a change of uh, a change from particularly TVNZ, not so much RNZ, because, well, not at all RNZ, because RNZ, I think, are... Uh, uh, get the model TVNZ. We we still it's it's work in place. We've had a couple of meetings with them, uh, and uh, I think they want the best of of all worlds at the moment. But we need them to uh, to change their attitude. Now, whether TVNZ's commercial culture is compatible with the ad-free imperatives of RNZ has been well aired already. But that was interpreted as a very public prod to TVNZ from the Minister to get with the non-profit public service programme, which they'll have to do pretty quickly if all this is to be in place by next March. Well, next Thursday is the next of the hearings before the committee, and there's more to come next month as well, including the leaders of both broadcasters being grilled in their submissions. So we'll be keeping an eye on all that here on Media Watch. And finally, this weekend on Media Watch. Do you know I was at Mum's yesterday for um, lunch? She bought three tomatoes. Guess how much? Oh, like three large ones in a bag. Oh, they weren't that large. Three tomatoes. How much? Like seven dollars. Seven fifty for three tomatoes. Wow. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. It was Duncan Garner on his Today FM show this week, clearly shocked at the price of tomatoes right now, and his colleague Trudy Nelson told him that what was going up would come down. Yeah. They'll be start to coming down in the next they, couple though? of weeks. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. They'll be they'll be everywhere. Come because remember, there it's a yeah, that's I a know. summer thing. Yeah, well, I should have told them that. I should have known that, shouldn't I? Well, yes, he should know that, because around about this time of year, Talkback Radio usually reverberates with shock horror anecdotes of the price of -of out-of-season produce. But it didn't stop Duncan Garner retailing his own anecdote again to his listeners soon after. Three single tomatoes, 7.50. 
I thought it'd be four bucks, not even close. Seven fifty. Uh, so we should grow our own tomatoes. Do you? Well, you can grow your own tomatoes, but unless you have a greenhouse, heating and skill, you won't have any to eat until the summer anyway, when they'll be plentiful and cheaper in the shops. And Duncan Garner only went on to confuse the audience further with stuff like this. Market gardens are expensive because of the fertiliser and um, floods, and actually more expensive than a dairy farm. That's what I was told at the weekend. Anyway... Another radio host alarmed by this was News Talk ZB's Kerry Woodham last week, though she knew what was mainly driving the high prices. I know people are banging on about the price of tomatoes, but really it is a summer fruit. Now Kerry Woodham's point was that at the moment you can't avoid food price inflation even if you give the off-season stuff a swerve, but when fresh food price stats showed prices spiking sharply last month, tomatoes went up by much more than anything else, so it isn't just the seasons that are sending the price as high as they are now. Last Monday, Stuff looked into this, and a grower told them that the price is going through the roof right now because of the rising cost of labour, fertiliser and energy, which is accounting for about 60% of the price of tomatoes on the shelf. And because growers couldn't guarantee how much they could plant, pick or process this year, they planted fewer tomatoes in the first place. Last weekend, interest.co.nz's Beck Stevenson also looked at this and reported that the PEP-MV virus in Auckland last year also reduced the planting this year and it also knocked out eight export markets for growers. Export tomatoes that might have been sold in New Zealand simply weren't. and The same export excess also usually brings down the price of apples, avocados and other fruit in a good year. And another thing... Decarbonising glasshouse production is another rising cost. Many glasshouses in the South Island still use coal to keep fruit warm. And it turns out that tomato growers saw this current price pinch coming amongst all the angst about high prices. So last month they tried to tell the media. RNZ's Rural News reported this three weeks ago. The group has been collating information from growers to create a list of their concerns. It includes rising input and energy costs, labour shortages and biosecurity incursions. And in its fact sheet of key concerns for the media was this one. The media focus on high prices without explaining the true cost of production, including simple seasonal changes. At that time, the chair of Tomatoes NZ, Barry O'Neill, told RNZ this. When the focus is on a price in a supermarket of $14 a kilo, people are not understanding what's going on. And Barry O'Neill also told RNZ, we thought we'd bring forward the growers' issues so we can have a more informed discussion with our consumers, with politicians and the media. So how's that going? Well, last week, TVNZ's Seven Sharp show devoted three minutes to the issue of costly tomatoes, starting like this. Tomatoes have gone up more than any other grocery item, 162% over the past 13 years. So why is the tasty treat so pricey at the moment? But before getting to that question, Seven Sharp host Jeremy Wells wasted time telling viewers what a tomato is. You'll find them in the quintessential kiwi burger, the sumptuous summer salad. Before eventually asking the question again. And for more on this, we're joined by Anthony Tringham from Curious Croppers. Great to talk to you, Anthony. Why are tomatoes so expensive at the moment? The reason tomatoes are so expensive at the moment is because it's winter. And I expect you to be coming to me in summer next year and saying, so, Anthony, why are tomatoes so cheap now? 
Tomatoes need sunshine to grow, and all through winter there is almost no sunshine. As we heard earlier, there is more to it than that at the moment, so Jeremy Wells asked why are tomatoes growing in greenhouses not smoothing out the prices? Tomato greenhouses are like a factory, but they're not like a factory that produces the same amount of fruit all year round. In a greenhouse, we make the environment as lovely as possible for the tomatoes to grow in, but we still don't have sun. And after that, Seven Sharp spent just 16 seconds on the problem of whether there were enough people to pick and process the fruit before they wound up talking about novelty tomatoes and whether the tomato is really a fruit or a vegetable. Meanwhile, News Talk ZB's Glenn Hart this week called the current prices Tomato Geddon in his Daily Highlights podcast, which he signed off like this. Yeah, my recent um, contract negotiation, I tried to get my um, salary tomato adjusted. Um, so just get it linked to the price of tomatoes. And they pointed out that sometimes tomatoes do get cheaper again and then they would start paying me less. So I've, I've redacted that, that bit of the contract and initialed it. Just a joke, obviously, but possibly a sign that the key message about the seasons is starting to get through. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.